So Lisa, every single day, I think I'm really uh, following more closely Lily Zhang's LinkedIn account because Lily, they are really posting some powerful thought-provoking posts. And the last one I read was um, really kind of calling out how the word authenticity or even the notion of authenticity is becoming outdated. It's, it's, getting to a place now where it really is almost meaningless because people don't know what to do with it. And so I said, whoa, this is interesting. Some of the words that I've used for years in DEI work are now being called out as outdated. So I know this is not the only word, right? There's other words we need to consider. Yeah, that's really interesting because I do see a lot of authenticity, vulnerability, all things like that in the context of business. Um, It's like it has spilled over from social work and human services. Um, But there are, it's a bit too simplistic, right? To just say, hey, yep, it'll be authentic in the workplace. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought we should kind of think about what language is becoming kind of stale and outdated and what in the world should we do about it, given that it's so hard to keep up as it is, right? Yep, I agree. Let's do it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, I don't know if it's just telling on myself (laughs) that I've been in this field for way too long to the point that words are becoming outdated, right? So it's like, you know, when I go back and read that literature about how people who are full-time in diversity, equity, and inclusion work usually have a turnover rate of about three to five years, and you and I have been in it much longer than that, um, obviously we should kind of assume that some of the language that we were using in the beginning no longer is applicable to our work. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, mm-hmm. it's got me kind of thinking, how do we know when we're out? <laughs> how do we know when we're outdated? How do we know that we're old news yeah. here? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But Lily Zhang's um, post really had me thinking about that. How can I make sure I'm keeping up? So I'm not embarrassing myself and, <laughs> and not doing justice to the communities I'm trying to serve. Yeah, this um, is a really interesting point. Like, how do we know when we're old news, right? I was reading in Triathlete Magazine, there was a piece about triathlon gear and, um, you know, of, of years gone by that is now in hindsight or, you know, retrospectively um, funny and mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous. And one of the things on there was like the pointy aero helmet and that, that's all great if there's no wind and you're going straight, right? But as soon as there's any kind of uh, side wind or, you know, um, curves in the road and you're moving your head around, it becomes like a huge sail or something, right? And so in the moment, it was all the rage. And then over time, we're like, oh, actually, that's not really a great idea and a number of other things. And so it's only been the passage of time that has enabled people to look back at that technology and realize that that probably wasn't the best way to be uh, air, quote unquote, aero, right? Um, 
And so, you know, is this going to mean that, you know, in another 10 years, Shauna, we're going to be looking back at this podcast in embarrassment and, and saying, why on earth did we use that terminology? Why didn't we see that that was a problem? Um, right. I, I right. do think that in many cases, it is, it is simply time and um, perspective that yes. leads to there because I think the language mm-hmm. especially changes so quickly. I mean, technology less so. Yeah. Well, maybe, yeah. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe technology does change really quickly, but in terms of kind of the terminology that we're using in this space, I feel mm-hmm. like it's ever evolving. And as you and I get further away from um, new generations that develop mm-hmm. new terminology, then yes, you know, we get more and more eyes rolled probably at the, the right. Use. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Now the reason why I um I couldn't keep myself together here giggling at the arrow helmets is I <laughs> literally have one of Sika Henry's old arrow helmets in my closet right now with all my bike gear. Literally, she gave me one of hers that she only used a couple of times. Oh, well, um, yeah. but I'm going to keep it and have her sign it. How about that? I'll keep it and have her sign the thing. Um, But you're, but you're right though. It's like, are we going to look back at ourselves and, and, you know, almost 80 episodes of a podcast and think we were ridiculous. Right. Um, But I do think it, it really, it gives us an opportunity to be really intentional about the words that we choose, even if we look back and think, what were we thinking? At least we thought about it. You know, at least we weren't, you know, using words that we knew had deeper meaning in ways that weren't thoughtful, weren't ethical, weren't um, inclusive. I think we can always grow to be more inclusive with language, but our intentions have never been to exclude individuals. But, you know, think about it, Lisa, look, we can go all the way back to when, when I was first getting into any type of diversity education type work or role, we were pushing our way out of language like tolerance, for example. And I'm thinking to myself, that really never made sense to me in any shape or form because I wouldn't want someone to say I'm I'm tolerating Shauna. You know, it's like, oh, I'm I'm putting up with it. I'm because my hand is being forced, I'm dealing with Shauna. So why would we say that for entire groups, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's one that really, you know, rubbed me the wrong way from jump. I mean, for years I'm like, uh no, let's not do that. But we know that entire curricula, entire nonprofit organizations use tolerance in their, you know, vision and mission and how they did things. And now we know that mm, not so much, right? Tolerance is interesting, definitely, because I certainly remember organizations that had tolerance. I remember mission Mm -hmm. and values of organizations that were committed or are committed to social justice, having the word tolerance. But you're right, like if you actually deconstruct the word and think about what that means, it's a it's a poor choice to use mm. in the context of inclusion and equity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. do I think certainly you obviously understood it to be inappropriate at the time, and you know it's probably white people really that took that took their sweet time recognizing that it was a problematic <laughs> word. But we've gotten there, and what damage was done right? By the proliferation of the word tolerance. And then thinking back right. to about authenticity, if you have a bunch of um, majority white, majority male workspaces who that are committed in part to 
being more inclusive and they're talking about folks being authentic in the workspace, they're able to have some authenticity because of their power, right? Their identity power or perhaps their positional power. And so right, right. in the workplace, I think right. it's pretty darn contingent on where you sit in that social identity hierarchy. Right, right. Well, and, and that was my thing, even with the authenticity piece, that kind of leans into what we know as safety bias. You know, you can only be as authentic as you feel safe. And so, you know, right now, I mean, I'm coming from my own identity, but we can think of other identities, for example, where, you know, we're still having legislation pass concerning the Crown Act in regards to people and women who look like me who don't feel safe showing up to their workplace or other places where they're employed with their authentic hair, the way it naturally grows out of their head. And so if you're having to legislate authenticity, what makes people think that certain groups can come in and be authentic without some type of of penalty at least or uh, some type of exclusion at most from being authentic? There. We could ask everybody to be authentic, but there are naturally going to be some groups that are more safe while they do that than others. And usually women, people of color, LGBT folks end up being on the less safe end of that spectrum, even in their full authenticity. We we know this to be true. How do we define authenticity? Who defines authenticity, right? So what does it Mm -hmm. mean for a white guy who's a head of an organization saying, we all need to be our authentic selves? Is he conceptualizing that in a certain way so then when you know Mm -hmm. folks do show up in their full authentic selves it's at odds with what that person is thinking about as authentic right 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 and and it made me reassess like even now Lisa usually when I start with um difficult dialogue trainings for example where we start because authenticity vulnerability uh candor is all fundamental to really um, dialogues that are about difficult issues or topics. Well, the majority of my curriculum that I've been using in the past, and now I want to reassess it all, has been based on Brene Brown's work on vulnerability and her research on vulnerability. I have to consider, okay, thank you, white woman, for your research on authenticity, But I now need to add to that to say, what are BIPOC and other folks of color saying about authenticity? Because I guarantee you, they will say something different than a white female researcher. And how do I add to that? Because authenticity for Brene Brown as a white woman who is now fairly affluent is going to be very different from a woman of color, LGBT person, et cetera. So authenticity needs some more lenses through which to understand it. Right. Right. Yeah. So now I got to go back and rewrite my curriculum now. Yeah. And I think there's so many words that are thrown about in the corporate and indeed nonprofit field that. Yes, 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 yes. Reconsider or think about. I mean, I used to work for a higher education institution who a department there had civility as one of its kind of pillars, I guess, if you will. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until I um, went to a training around social justice that this concept of civility was identified as problematic in the sense of people of color can never be civil in the, the eyes of white power, right? And so, mm-hmm. dog interruption, why, no, right. um, 
why then would a predominantly white institution that is striving to be its version yeah. of racist have stability as kind of this core pillar, right? Oh, um, yeah. And yeah, I yeah. see that a lot, right? Be civil, be respectful. And isn't that, that's a little tone policy and also kind of taps into some of these historic pieces in the United States, especially about who can and cannot be respectful, respected, and civil, right? Right, 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 right. And exactly. And you're right. Who gets to determine what protest is, right? What what civility is and what protest is? Because, you know, what's that quote that uh, Dr. King says? Um, he said something to the effect of uh, protest is the language of the unheard. So it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. at what point do you get to a place where, okay, we've been quote unquote civil, we've been the white version of civil, we've been the white male version of civil, and that wasn't heard, it was ignored, it was devalued. And so once you get to a place where you're tired of being civil because civ civility doesn't allow you to be seen as a full person, I mean, for, for me as a Black person to hear civility, it makes me feel like, okay, you want me to stay in the three fifths of a person mindset mentality. And I'm a whole person. And so in order to be a whole person, I may not be as docile as you would like me to be. Because when black people were docile in this country, it didn't get us very far. And so now we can't be docile. We have right. to move to a different place. Right. So, and yeah. I would say that for in any non-white, non-male group, being docile doesn't get us very far, which is why Dr. King talked about this protest piece. So I think you're right. That civility piece is tone policey. Um, and again, we got a question, who's civil are we talking about? Like, you know, we've seen in the research, Lisa, about um, communication styles, for example, and people of color usually prefer very candid communication styles, which flies in the face of the white uh, definitions of civility. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's not compatible. It's, it's just not. So, yeah. So then <sighs> it begs the question when I'm thinking about employee handbooks and policies and non-discrimination policies often in, in there now today, right? Um, there are clauses related, maybe not using the word civil, but certainly respectful and based on what we just articulated, what you just articulated, even that is problematic because if you don't really define what respect means, then it's really, a, it's an assumed shared understanding. But my guess is that assumed shared understanding is one of the leadership. And we know in most corporate environments, yeah. most yeah. leadership is white, right? Yeah, um, that's right. That's and right. so, you know, like, and then certainly, in my experience, women of color have been called disrespectful more times than I can count. Um, right, 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 right. Because right. maybe the communication right. style is more direct, more candid, or, mm -hmm. you know, they're pointing out discrimination and therefore that's disrespectful, which is kind of goes mm -hmm. with Colin Kaepernick piece, right? So, oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, which seems very docile in a way, right? Like there's no noise, there's no banners. It's just kneeling, but that was uncivil, disrespectful, right? It's like right. yeah, the whole system is right. set up in a way that doesn't allow for um, yeah. a, a, a proper or deep understanding of the words that we use and the impact that they have. 
Right, right, exactly. Well, you know, you made me think about it. So I remember, especially being here in the DMV area, that um, at Johns Hopkins University, there was the entire Johns Hopkins civility project. And it was on the research of civility and how it shows up or not in the workplace. And I remember that was one of the books that I read um, when I first started um, in a higher ed role. And what's interesting when, you know, I looked back at the gentleman who kind of founded the research in the center, well, you know, he was not, um, he's a native of Italy, um, was not native to the U.S., may or may not have understood some of the deep-seated oppression that happens in the U.S. And so, civility from a European perspective may, and I'm assuming is completely different from a U.S. perspective. So, you know, all of that really helps me to think through. So, for example, some of his books were, um, for example, Choosing Civility, 25 Rules of Considerate Conduct, or The Civility Solution, What to Do When People Are Rude. Well, who gets to determine what rude is or how rude is defined, for example? And I have not read those books, um, but it just makes me kind of query down into the language. Well, who gets to determine what's rude? Because a candid woman of color has been more times than not, as you mentioned, labeled as rude, as inconsiderate, as disrespectful, as unprofessional. Even as we might have a huge smile on our face when we tell someone something they don't want to hear, that's seen as unprofessional, rude, uncivil, all of those words. So again, that's telling me that BIPOC folks, women, women of color aren't the ones defining rudeness or civility. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And here's a a, a point around language. Um, Mm -hmm. The term native um, is interesting in the context of the United States. It's different. It would it's perhaps different in some European countries, perhaps, right? But yeah, in terms yeah. of folks who say I'm a native blankety blank state, well, mm-hmm. and they're white, right? Or they're not, they're not indigenous, they're not Native American. Well, you're not right, really, right? Um, right, and right, so right. I hear that all the time. I don't necessarily hear that in the, in the sense of business per se, but in introductions, right? I'm a native mm. Coloradan or I'm a native Michigan, Mich- yeah. I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, that's mm-hmm. curious to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that cultural context matters, right? Like the Italian guy, I don't know the history of Italy. So I don't know what that would yeah. make sense or what or how misogynistic, sexist, racist Italy is. I mean, I could make some assumptions, but that probably wouldn't be right. Fair. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, um, exactly. Then, you know, so then what does consider what does considerate mean? Right, right. There, what does considerate mean? Here. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and then my next question would be kind of, you know, what is (laughs) if if you had to choose like a word or phrase that you no longer use or would encourage people to no longer use in the future, what would yours be? Because I'm sitting here thinking about mine. I'm not sure (laughs) because it's like a moving target. It is. Um, I think we've talked about moving from diversity to representation a lot on this pod. So I I would definitely use that as a default, but Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. any other words you would kind of switch to? I think um, there has been a big movement of late around girl boss or Ah, or the last couple of years. Right. And I don't love that. 
<laughs> because mm-hmm. I don't love one that we have to put a gender in front of it. Like, so it's what boss and girl boss, right? Like I hate it when we are like, Oh, women, yeah. um, that's a good one or, you know, whatever. So sort of that I hate, but this girl boss thing, I don't find that to be particularly empowering. And then have you ever heard boy boss? Are men ever called boy bosses? No, right? Unless we because it's the default. Boss. Yeah. And if we racialize that, probably then the boss would go away, right? It would just be right. So right, right, right. Um, yeah. So I think girl boss, you know, is not empowering. <laughs> and right, you know, right. People probably disagree with me on that, but I find any kind of like reduction of adult women to girls is a problem. <laughs> oh, well, that's true. That's true. Like you know, girl power you know, those, those types of words. Yeah. Yeah. Oh goodness. Well, you know, I, I've been a proponent of this one for a while, Lisa, and I I would love to hear how you feel about it, given that, you know, we, we share, we share the, the womanhood identity, but I have been thinking about how we should completely abandon black girl magic as language. And part of it is kind of connected to that whole uh, that that confidence porn piece that we were talking about in a previous podcast where it's like, of course, we're confident, but also, too, it's like, yeah, we're human beings. We're not magical beings that we have magic wands under our desk. Like there are people actually doing this work and doing very hard work that they have rarely gotten credit for. So that one to me is a stickler, even though I know lots of populations really like that word and and see it as a compliment. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard it here and there, but I have mostly seen it in the context of wine because I believe that there is a wine brand called Black Girl Magic. It sure is. That's right. It sure um, is. Then there's Mm -hmm. another um, African-American woman owned winery that has a varietal um, that's called Black Girl Magic. So uh, oh wow yeah yeah so I'm, I'm starting to slowly but surely abandon that language I, I didn't use it that much to begin with but it's a catch-22 because of course I'm I find a lot of pride in that group but I also don't want people to assume that the things that we do you know there's no effort energy sacrifice yeah anything yeah. to do what we do like you know would you you know, like a lot of people have said, you know, Stacey Abrams is like the epitome of black girl magic. Yeah. And y'all haven't seen all those late night hours and all the community organizing and all the stuff that, you know, you get to look at Wolf Blitzer's, you know, magic map to see the outcome of it, but you haven't been tracking her for years and all that she's done, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. So it's a, it's a minimization of Black and African American women's contribution, but it's wrapped right. in a compliment. And yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. 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 I, and it, it's, um, I won't say it's a backhanded compliment because I do think people are sincere when they say it, but it's amplifying the outcome, but really not delving into look at all, what all went into this to make this happen. Let's, let's not ignore that. So it, it almost feels kind of, um, What's the language? Um, it feels like that invisible labor and office uh, office housework folded into one, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it yeah. feels like for me with that back end piece. So, you know, absolutely. I want to celebrate what she's accomplished, but very few people go like until she was a major powerhouse with the most recent presidential election. 
people weren't really going back into her history, what she's accomplished, what she's done, what she hasn't done. It, it took something big for people to go back and see all the smaller micro actions that resulted in this major thing. Yeah, she's running for governor, right? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, and don't forget on uh, on Star Trek, she was uh, I know, I saw president that. of Planet Earth. Yes, President of Planet Earth, great. I actually, I saw the clip, I need to watch the whole thing, but um, yes, yes, so another, yes, yes, another word, you touched on it earlier around safety, you know, big oh, in the yeah. mid-2000s in both uh, nonprofit education and corporate was this idea of safe zones. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, people would slap a sticker on their door and, you know, present themselves as being safe, particularly to the LGBTIQA community, when right. in fact they may not be. Um, and right. it became like, well, who determines whether someone is safe or not? And does like a 60 minute training really create safety? Um, That's right. And that level of safety is going to be different based on your identities, right? And so Mm -hmm. I still hear in the context of business, not necessarily safe zone, but we want to create safe spaces. We want this to be safe so that you can be authentic, kind of going back to our earlier conversation. And I've really moved away from using the term safe um, because I don't get to determine when someone else feels safe. Right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And, and, you know, really uh, naming it as a point of privilege that if you are saying we unequivocally, we create safe spaces, that's a point of privilege. You, you can't say that for someone else. So, yeah, that's a really important one. But people are moving from the safe spaces to either safer spaces or brave spaces. And even yeah. with brave spaces, I'm still... and I've used it. So let me, I'm speaking of myself here, brave spaces, eh, again, is contextual because is your cultural context in your organization positioning the most disenfranchised groups to be as brave as possible? That's systemic. You know, that's not just, oh, Lisa, you must be brave. It's does the system also allow the person to be brave in ways that are not punitive? Right. Yeah. You know, both of them. Yeah, that makes me think of strength. Um, And I'm thinking about it in a very specific context. But if I were to apply that to a sporting context, right, and the ways in which we use strength or we bestow the compliment, oh, my gosh, you're so strong. um, It's often in reference to someone who's done kind of a long endurance event and has finished. And I think the, the implication through absence, right, is that if you don't do a long course event or you don't finish, that you are somehow not strong. Um, And so, you know, and and in what ways are we defining strength and is strength defined um, in a multitude of contexts through kind of masculinity and masculine strength? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I remember, Gosh, I'll have to look back and find that article. It was an article written by, I believe it was a, a pro triathlete um, that usually, you know, were in somewhere in the the four hour range for a 70.3 and talking about how much stronger back of the pack people were because they were out there for six, seven, eight hours doing the very same race and how much more effort that takes than the three to four hours fast. And I was like, wow, that's a good reframe. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, 
it's a good reframe yeah. because a pro athlete doesn't necessarily have to say that, but yeah, it's like, it's, we, we jokingly say in my, um, in my tri club, it's a full work day and it is a full work day for those of us who are mid-level or backpack. It's a full work day for us. And so, you know, given that, you know, how do we position it in a way um, to recognize that strength comes in different uh, wrappers? Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. But Lisa, I, I, <laughs> I'm trying to stay up to speed and trying not to be a washed out DEI educator with the whole uh, conscious style guide that I've been trying to keep up with, that newsletter I forwarded over to you. It's tough to keep up with it, but I'm glad that someone has taken it on upon themselves to keep a website that's really devoted to staying up to speed with options of language, what's appropriate, what's appropriate in certain contexts and so forth. So yeah, we're, I, I think this conversation is going to be one that we're going to have to keep, you know, we're going to have to keep pushing the pace yeah. on this to make sure that we're up to speed on things, even as things change. Yeah, and I think that it can be frustrating if you're beginning your DEI journey, you're pushing mm. better inclusion and equity practices in your place of employment, in your mm-hmm. race, in, you know, whatever, and the language is moving and the ground feels like it's never very stable. Um, yeah, I understand that that's frustrating, but I think it's on us um, really to yeah. try our best to stay up to date. And this website will include it in the show notes. It's going to be one guide that can assist you there. Yeah, um, yeah, and absolutely. You know, as we just identified through this conversation, things change, norms change, new generations come through, and identities shift, mm-hmm. and how one identifies themselves and others. Mm-hmm. You know, they they do change, and I think one of the problems that we have is that we think language is fixed. We think that there oh, is a yeah. meaning that is attached mm-hmm. to a fixed word. Like mm-hmm. dog could not mean anything other than, you know, a furry four-legged friend, but there's some arbitrariness around that, right? Yes. Uh, and so yes. I think that the same would be That's true right. for any of this language. And then we also have to think about in the context of business and sport, a lot of that language has been created and populated mm. by one group of people. And so That's right. we need That's to right. due diligence of kind of deconstructing that and reforming the way that we talk about certain issues and certain groups. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Lisa, I hear that we have both a hell yeah and a hell no nah this week. What, what we got here? What we got with hell no? Nah? Hell yeah. Hell no. Nah. Okay. I think you're doing the hell no, nah, no? Is this, let's, we have, we have so many though. That's the problem. We have so many more hell no's than hell yes. <laughs> I think again, Look, you know, I usually go with my home state, right? There's so much to choose from. Um, But Senator Mike Braun, what are you doing, sir? Senator Mike Braun is now trying to uh, somewhat reverse uh, Loving versus Virginia. And so instead of the Supreme Court ruling standing, Senator Braun wants to state that this should go back to the states interracial marriage ruling should be left to states and yeah i'm like how many what are you doing you're taking us back like 30 years come on are you serious like this is one of those issues that i was hoping was all buttoned up and we don't have to readdress again but it's like 
some folks just have an axe to grind that they're going to be grinding forever. That, that's what I'm feeling with this one. Is It's just like enough already. You lost. You lost. I feel like this is like the whole Civil War conversation. You lost. Let it go. You lost. So, yeah, he wants to, you know, wants to go all the way back to 1967, Loving versus Virginia. Um, so, yeah, that hell no. Nah. We're not going back to that because then again, not to play oppression Olympics, but to see how all of this is a systematic web. If we do this in regards to Loving versus Virginia, when it comes to race, we know that similar things may happen to same-sex marriage and other issues that have had a parallel trajectory through up to the Supreme Court. No, we are not opening that can of worms ever again. No, thank you. So go go, go sit down somewhere. Senator Braun, go sit down somewhere. (laughs) That makes me think about um, Justice Kavanaugh's comment related to reproductive justice and the recent Mississippi plan mm. uh, in front of the court in that mm-hmm. wouldn't it be the best scenario if the courts just stepped out of the issue because it's really something that should be legislated and back to the states, whereas mm-hmm. I think it was Justice Kagan or Sotomayor that said, but that's what the court system is here for right, is to protect those rights. Um, Yes, yes. yes. We are the remedy because if there is a right that's written down, but there's no remedy to address the fact that that right has been violated, then the right is Mm -hmm. right. So that's right. um, That's right. So it's that kind of this idea that, well, the courts should just stay out of it. Like Supreme Court should never have ruled on Loving versus Virginia because it's a quote unquote states rights issue. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And that is a U.S. senator is quite depressing to me. Exactly. Right. And, you know, I'm it's so frustrating because I'm thinking, okay, again, you still have an axe to grind. This is far gone. Why are you going this far back? Let let it go. Let it go. Please let it go. So, yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting one. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, even those that agree with him don't want to rehash what's already been settled. So. Anyway, that's my hell nah for this week. It's a good hell nah. So. Um, I can count that uh, with a good hell yeah. So a few days ago, it came out that um, civil a civil rights activist named Opal Lee, who is the young age of 95, in 20, mm. 2016, she walked um, for two and a half miles from Fort Worth, Texas, to then that can't be right. The, I'm reading an article here and it says two and a half miles from Fort Worth, Texas to Washington, DC, which is clearly not two and a half miles. I think that's 2,500 miles. It should have uh, been. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a huge typo. <laughs> um, and she collected one and a half million signatures along the way to symbolize the 2.5 years that it took for the Emancipation Proclamation to be enforced. So if you remember, Juneteenth, um, the holiday that is now coming up, it'll be in its second year, um, was the date at which the information about the Emancipation Proclamation made it to Texas. Um, And so her her campaign, doing the walk, collecting those signatures, served as a call to action to make Juneteenth a national holiday, which, as you may recall, Mm -hmm. last year under the Biden administration. So she has been affectionately named the grandmother of Juneteenth and has been nominated for a 2022 Nobel Peace Prize. And so there were a good number of congressional members who put in her nomination. So I think that's pretty darn cool to be recognized for that. 
Oh, that's big. That's huge. That is so, I mean, just to be a nominee, that's, that's pretty huge. And um, yeah, I just looked up the distance uh, about 1300 miles, but that's a long way for an 80 something person um, or any person to go that far. That's a pretty long way, but I so appreciate she got all those signatures and that she's being considered for this because this is huge. And um, Lisa, speaking of Juneteenth, we may have some really great developments leading up to Juneteenth about some really good programming. So I'm excited about that. Um, but well done, Miss Lee. We are so proud and happy uh, that you're being recognized on a global scale um, in regards to this very distinct uh, U.S. holiday. So that is very cool. It is um, an important recognition, right? So even if she doesn't win it, the fact that congressional mm -hmm. nominated her and that she has this platform and That's right. to hear about the work that she did is That's right. special, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we've wrapped up another one, Lisa. I, I don't know that I've come to any um, a concrete plan on how to keep up with language, but... Nope, nope. Ooh, we have we have our work cut out for us, right? Yes, we do. So just I guess we just <laughs> paying attention. <laughs> <laughs>